And he gave me some of my best advice, which is, you know, sometimes there are projects that are meant to be set aside because I was sort of bashing my head up against this project and his attitude, he didn't literally say it, but basically he was like, dude, you're 26, go have some more adventures. You know, you hmm. take the lessons that you learn from this book. It probably will never be a book and that's fine um, because these books have lessons to teach. And that was great advice. And it's probably advice I'd give to other writers that, that, um, Earnest, hard-won failures uh, can teach you as much as anything. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I take a deep dive into my experience as a travel writer and a travel writing teacher. It's actually an inversion of how I usually do these podcasts since this episode started out as an interview for Jeremy Bassetti's Travel Writing World podcast, which also featured writers like Paul Theroux and Alexandra Fuller and Pico Iyer talking about the business and craft of travel writing. In this conversation, Jeremy and I talk about how my career got started more than two decades ago and how starting a travel writing career is a different task these days. We talk about how travel writing at its best blends memoir with reportage in a way that's personal yet universal. We talk about the concept of psychogeography and how the travel book market is great right now for women writers in particular. We talk about the travel memoir workshops I offer in Paris each summer, more about those at pariswritingworkshops.com. Actually, since the pandemic kicked in, I've gotten a lot of interest in next year's one-week Paris travel writing workshop, which features small classes in a great travel setting. One of my travel writing classes in August of 2021 is already full, so I've decided to offer several more, and I'm willing to be flexible on when exactly in August or July or maybe even June they will happen, and where exactly in Paris they'll take place. So if you're interested, you can inquire through the pariswritingworkshops.com website, or you can email me directly at deviateatrolfpots.com. Sometimes my assistant handles those emails, but I do read them all. I'd love to create some classes next year that both sharpen people's travel writing craft and offer a safe and fun experience in Paris. So in your email, please tell me a little bit about yourself and when next summer might work best, and we'll see if we can design a few classes specifically for Deviate listeners. Again, just hit me up at deviateatrolfpots.com or check out the offerings at pariswritingworkshops.com. If you want to pack light and smart for one of my classes in Paris or on a vagabonding journey anywhere in the world, be sure to check out the innovative travel bags designed by Tortuga, which is currently in the middle of its holiday sale. Go to rolfpotscom Tortuga to check out their backpacks and backpack accessories. Even if you're just curious, I encourage you to go there just to see what cool packs they have on offer. If you decide to get a Tortuga pack as a gift or even for your own travel kit this holiday season, that rolfpotscom slash Tortuga address guarantees you 20% off purchases of $200, 25% off purchases of $300, and a 30% discount on backpack products amounting to $500 or more. The sale lasts until December 21st, and if you order by December 15th, you'll get free ground shipping and delivery before Christmas. A reminder, if you enjoy my podcast from week to week, to share your favorite episodes with friends who might be interested, and to spread the word by leaving a friendly rating or review at whichever podcasting service you use to listen to Deviate. All right, here's Jeremy Bassetti and me talking about the art and craft of travel writing. We start by talking about how my early mistakes and failures taught me my most important lessons as a travel writer. Let's listen in. Could you just explain how you got into travel writing was it your 1999 story storming the beach in salon or 
Well, Story on the Beach was certainly uh, a story that was that opened a lot of doors because it was in Best American Travel Writing. Bill Bryson chose mm-hmm. it for Best American Travel Writing 2000. Um, actually, my travel writing goes back to probably the mid-90s and starts with failure, which is always a great way to start. I think you can learn a lot through failure. Um, mm-hmm. my, first, my first vagabonding trip was in 1994. I lived in a van sort of van life before hashtag van life. Um, and I tried to write a book about it and it just didn't work. You know, I made a lot of mistakes that young writers make. Um, it probably wasn't universal enough. And I set it aside, moved to Korea. And then in Korea, I started doing some, some different kinds of travel writing, including writing for Salon, which at the time had a travel department, had an excellent travel department, narrative travel. Mm-hmm. And so by the time Storming the Beach came out, I had been writing narrative stories, sort of long form stories uh, about my travel experiences for about a year. And then when I wrote Storming the Beach, which is about this attempt to invade the set of Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach while it was filming in Thailand, um, that put me on a lot of people's radars. And I basically became a a full-time writer after that. You tried to write a book on van life and or your experiences there. And it didn't work. So what do you mean? And how didn't it work? Well, I had always been a good writer in, in the contexts where I was living in, in, in high school and college, I wrote for those school newspapers and people enjoyed reading what I wrote. Um, and so when I traveled around the United States, living in a van and having these adventures, uh, I decided that I would just sort of convert my journals into some sort of book. Mm. And what resulted was a fairly well written on the paragraph level story that maybe didn't really connect. I guess it didn't keep the audience in mind that I was sort of chronologically recounting my adventures that meant a lot to me, but I think I forgot to write it in such a way that it would one, engage the audience and two, give them something to chew on a little bit, give, give them a lesson or an insight or some sort of universal resonance. Mm -hmm. And I think as readers, we take it for granted that the writers that we read are doing that. But as a writer, I, you know, most writers write so well that when you read their stuff, you don't think about how they're structuring the narrative for your enjoyment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so I just sort of had this recounting of my adventures that was sort of chronological and not necessarily very universal. And and it read well at the sentence level, but there was no, I didn't give my readers, uh, an excuse to, to read the story. Like if if somebody read one page of the story, there's not, they wouldn't necessarily want to read the rest of that book, not because it was poorly written, but because it wasn't structured in a narrative way. And that's not an uncommon thing for a young writer to -hmm. discover. And it was important for me, you know, that it was, it was cheaper than grad school being, being (laughs) failing at a book and, and being depressed about my writing was, was not happy at that time in my life, but it was cheaper than going to grad school to learn a similar lesson. Right. And you said when it didn't work, does that mean personally it didn't work for you or was there like a writing group involved or an agent involved that, you know, gave you the hard lesson that, you know, there was something off in terms of story? Yeah, there were several layers. Um, because it was it was fairly well written, I did have some agents that were interested, mm. but it was it was never beyond the "we'll send us the rest of your chapters" sort of thing. I and see. so, I, I would send them the idea and uh, you know uh, uh, some summaries and some sample chapters, and then nobody bit. Um, actually, you know, not that many agents were interested in more material, but nobody was really interested when I sent them 
more chapters. And then also I was working with my sister. Um, it's interesting. She's always been an early reader of my work. And she actually told me early on, you, you have to form this for the, for, you know, the reader's experience. You can't just chronologically recount what happened. And then actually, um, John Ferdinand, my old high school English teacher who passed away in 2000 and I dedicated vagabonding to, uh, he said the same thing and he gave me some of my best advice, which is, you know, sometimes there are projects that are meant to be set aside because I was sort of bashing my head up against this project and his attitude, he didn't literally say it, but basically he was like, dude, you're 26, go have some more adventures. You know, you hmm. take the lessons that you learn from this book. It probably will never be a book and that's fine um, because these books have lessons to teach. And that was great advice. And it's probably advice I'd give to other writers that, that, um, Earnest, hard-won failures uh, can teach you as much as anything. Mm. That's great. I, I want to get into the, um, the the conversation about story structures in uh, a little bit. But one of the contexts for the reason why we're having this conversation is that you um, teach every summer a travel memoir workshop in, in Paris. And you're doing it again in August 2020. Um, and so <clears throat> in this workshop... You deal with, I guess you have a couple of different workshops, but the travel memoir workshop in particular, um, you deal with all things travel memoir. So um, how would you or how do you define a travel memoir and what makes a memoir, travel memoir different from, I don't know, any other type of travel writing like feature stories, right? Isn't uh, in some ways most of travel writing a personal account of uh, time on the road? Well, it is. It depends on how wide you want to spread the net for travel writing because a ton mm. of travel writing is service travel writing. And so it's basically, even if it has a personal element, it's about advice on where to go and where to stay and what to eat and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually a very lucrative kind of travel writing. Um, there's, a, there's a huge market for that sort of thing. Whereas travel memoir occupies a space that is between just sort of hard-bitten, straight-up international journalism and tourism promotion. So the, the hard bit travel journalism is usually going to have a sort of a man bites dog conflict going on that mm -hmm. it's going to cover disasters and wars and, and negative things. Whereas the tourism promotion, which is often tied into to, to travel writing, to service travel writing, it's going to be the, the empty beaches and, and the delicious cocktails. And, and <laughs> it's going to be more of the consumer aspect of travel, mm -hmm. whereas travel memoir allows you to interpret a place through the lens of self. And the degree to which you include yourself in this memoir is going to differ from from memoir to memoir, although it's it's always ideally it's always a, a blend of personal reflection and sort of reminding the reader of who's telling the story and reportage. Uh, it's reporting on other places because um, it's very rare that just a normal day for normal people in another country is a story that people tell. And so we get this sense that the world is this dangerous place that's full of disasters and wars when in fact that's just the news cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So tra travel memoir allows you to reflect on your own life and how your own life is changing and what you're discovering and, and what your emotions are. You're not pretending to objectivity like a hard journalist. But at the same time, you're reporting on these everyday aspects of other cultures and societies, even if it's just a few towns over from where you live, in such a way that the person who can who reads that story gets a vicarious sense for these other cultures uh, in such a way that they can sort of understand them better as they understand you better as their narrator. Mm -hmm. And how is this then different from 
autobiography? Well, autobiography is is almost an old fashioned form now. Um, that basically, if you were an important politician or, or master of industry, that at the end of your life you wrote your autobiography, which is basically your entire life story. Whereas you don't have to be an important person, air quotes, important person mm -hmm. to, to write a memoir that basically you take, uh, an aspect of your life that might have resonance. You know, you read a John Rockefeller autobiography and, and who knows, I don't even know if he wrote an autobiography, but like, who knows how relatable that's going to be. Whereas with a memoir, you just take a, a section of your life and in, in a travel memoir, it's, it's very specific. It's a, it's a travel section of your life and you write about your own experience in such a way that even if you're not famous, people can relate to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if John Rockefeller goes to Egypt he might go there in a way that's not relatable, but as a normal person, air quotes, normal person, you can write memoiristically about a place. And, and even if you're a, a young mother who's taking a child to Egypt and, and encountering the, the, the challenges and joys of that situation, that can be communicated in a way that's universal enough so that a person who's not a mother or doesn't have kids and is a, maybe a young male person can really understand the human resonance in that. Mm. So yeah, so I don't even know if autobiographies. I guess like you know, Bill Clinton writes a book that's sort of considered an autobiography, but um, memoirs are a huge market these days. Right, right. So you mentioned this um, important or uh, famous person <laughs> clause, right? So um, if you're not important, uh, so to speak, or, or famous, right? So how does someone you know conquer the the so what factor of of your book, like? You know, what I mean is like, how does a travel memoirist write something that becomes uh, less about the author, right? Uh, and, and a book that's more about these universal truths that you mentioned earlier, right? That appeal to and resonate more with others. Um, I don't know, like, uh, how Elizabeth Gilbert did it in Eat, Pray, Love, but, you know, that book kind of does the trick, right? Hugely confessional, idiosyncratic, but relatable. Like, how does one transcend the dear mom diary style of writing, right? And, and kind of wrestle with an, a big idea that's relatable and universal. Is that the mat? Is that like the trick? How does one do that? Well, you have to be honest uh, because in a way it's not a matter of eliminating yourself from the narrative. Although uh, Doug Bach Clark wrote a book called The Last Whalers, which is a travel narrative, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, about Indonesia, where he's really not present in that story at all. It's all about these this culture in, in Indonesia, and, and that's terrific. But usually you include yourself in such a way, in such an honest way that your humanity speaks to other people's humanity. And I think it's important to remember that we often perform versions of ourselves, like in social media, you know, that we, mm -hmm. we sort of try to create a version of ourselves that other people will be impressed by or other people will want to be. And that's fine. But in the, in the sense of a memoir, people you know, people have Instagram to see the the sort of semi-fake perfect versions of other people. Mm -hmm. Whereas a travel memoir, you want to get into your your own weaknesses. And, and Elizabeth Gilbert's writing does plumb her own weaknesses and her own shortcomings mm -hmm. in some ways. And so uh, – and there's an extent to which – I mean some complaints against East Pray Love was there's too much Elizabeth Gilbert, not enough repertorial mm -hmm. details about the culture she was in. And that could be a subjective thing. Some people have a thirst for a lot of memoir in other places where some other people have a thirst for a lot of other places with a little bit of memoir. But I think, you know, the phrase is that 
you the most universal ideas are communicated by the most specific experiences. Mm-hmm. So if you tr- if you try to write about yourself in a way that is a wide net that 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 traps everybody, it's not going to work very well. Again, you know, the, the young mother in, in Egypt traveling with her, her kids, if she writes with an emotional and repertorial specificity, then that's going to resonate more than if somebody s- sort of tries to write a generic avatar that that covers as many people as possible. Um, and so it's really through the the specifics of your own experience, who you meet, what you see, and your own style, you know, how you, how your your voice is, be it a humorous voice or a, a deeply emotional voice or a, a more analytical and philosophical voice. Those are the things that are going to, to relate to people. And that's something that comes up a lot in my classes, you know, that people um, – Everybody a, a, is a reader, and most of my students are pretty good readers, but then you have to write in such a way that you keep the hypothetical reader in mind uh, because you do want to speak uh, to your own universal themes through the specificity of what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of um, our, our mutual recent guests, Paul Theroux, you know, uh, his recent book, On the Plane of Snakes, writes about his personal journey through Mexico. But at some point, it becomes less about his his journey and deals with, as you say, kind of the, the people, the history and the politics of the place that Paul's uh, is visiting. Um, the, this is the type of thing that you would recommend uh, travel memoir writers to keep in mind, to be analytical, to be historical, to be cultural. Yeah, I mean, I through was an influence on me. I read the Happy Isles of Oceania mm. really early in my travel writing career, and I was just amazed by how much research went into that, how much I learned. And just yesterday, literally, um, I quoted Paul Through's Mexico books to some friends because I was talking about how he talks about how Poughkeepsie, New York, is full of Mexican workers from a specific village in Oaxaca, right? Mm. Uh, and if Paul Through was completely talking about you know, what it's like to be an aging writer and how he felt when he was eating this food. If it was all about Paul Theroux, I wouldn't have a broadened sense of the world mm-hmm. and of like the, the, the Mexican labor market as, as pertains to very specific humans from very specific places. So he's a good example. I don't think everybody needs to be – Paul Theroux is, is sort of a tough example because he writes like a book a year and they're all <laughs> deeply researched and he, he like learns Spanish. Right. Yeah, I just – I, he baffles me um, how how prolific he can be, but that's a tool in your toolkit. Um, and I think oftentimes young writers don't forget that, especially travel writers, don't forget that there's a lot that you can learn through your research after your trip is done to convey facts, you know, mm-hmm. not just emotions, but but facts about other places that can help you understand things better. And so the fact that Poughkeepsie, New York has all of these workers from a very specific village in Oaxaca, it speaks to so many things, you know, like the fact that one family member goes, they invite another family member. You know, there's there's a there's so much nuance which gets lost at the social media level of discourse these days that can be communicated in a memoir and especially a travel memoir. Mm-hmm. It's like these other elements that that you're referring to um, the history, the culture, the the people, the the analysis, right? These, um, if it's a how-to book, maybe that these aspects of of books kind of are embellished, in some ways, by the personal anecdotes that one deals with abroad, and those anecdotes are also given given a framework of relevance thanks to them, right? It's interesting how some of the successful, in my opinion, uh, and interesting travel um, memoirs are are ones that kind of dig deeper and become 
less kind of idiosyncratic like that. Yeah. And travel writing is a generalist's um, discipline too. Uh, and of course, Paul Theroux covers lots of bases, but you can, sure. you can see a place through the lens of architecture or language or anthropology or politics. You know, there's, there's all sorts of of lenses that one can draw on as a travel writer and nothing is really limited. It's not like an academic discipline where you have to really stay within the rules of your framework. You can draw on all these things. Uh, a writer like Paul Theroux will draw on dozens of things. I mean, he has a whole, you know, set piece in that book about police harassment basically, mm -hmm. but it's, a, but it's a nuanced set piece because he's not a normal Mexican person. He's, he's, you know, a privileged American person and he acknowledges that, but that doesn't make it any less frustrating. And so he, he brings a lot of nuance by looking at the legal or lack of legal framework that involves police citizen interactions in Mexico. Um, and that's, you know, travel writers can draw on that. They can draw on food. You know, there's, there's, there's been great books that, um, that draw on food. I, I just, for my podcast, interviewed a guy named Derek Sandhouse who writes a book about Baijiu, the, the Chinese lit liquor. Uh, and there's sort of an industrial component to that too, but he he sort of interprets China through not just the, the presence of this liquor, which outsells whiskey and vodka and tequila combined globally because there's so many people in China, it's such a common drink. But he also mm -hmm. looks at the history of how alcohol um, has developed through the course of the culture. And so it's, it's about alcohol, but it's also about China. It's also about Chinese history and how specific that is. And this is just a couple of examples of, of writers. Another person I might interview soon is, is Maggie Downs, who has a book called Braver Than You Think coming out. Um, gosh, I forget when it's coming out. Next spring, I think. Her travels are fairly normal. They're fairly, it's a fairly normal vagabonding journey, but her mother has Alzheimer's disease back home. And so she's sort of taking the travels that her mother couldn't take, right? Mm. And so, so it's blended with a very, it's not a super repertorial book and it doesn't really go, it, you know, she goes to Machu Picchu, you know, she hikes to Machu Picchu. That's not a very revolutionary place to go. It's a wonderful place to go. But because she's sort of talking about ideas of humanity and loss and aging, um, and decline. Uh, she humanizes a trip in a, in a way that's completely different than what Derek Soundhouse or Paul Theroux would do. So really a travel, a blessing of travel writing is that you can take any number of lenses and write a terrific book. Mm -hmm. and it's, you, some interesting angles, uh, will emerge out of that as well. And so you'd referenced, uh, travel writing as kind of this generalist, uh, thing, uh, maybe also interdisciplinary in some ways. Do you find, uh, the research part of writing to be difficult or enjoyable? Oh, I find it enjoyable and almost too enjoyable because, <laughs> and I'm not the only person who does this, I'm researching. Hole. Yeah. When I should be writing, I'm researching. Right. Um, but yet there's no perfect solution to that because sometimes I'll be in hour 12 of research and I'll find the perfect detail, mm. um, on which to hinge my story. Other times I'll be on hour 12 of research and it should be hour 10 of writing. Right. Um, and so that's a tough one. And, and really, uh, I, as I tell my students, research is that iceberg that buoys the story. You know, you might see mm. just the tip of the iceberg on the water. Um, but all of that other research, even if it doesn't make it into the book, you reinforce your authority. You know, the root of author is authority. Mm -hmm. And the more you know about what lurks under the water in that iceberg, the more authoritatively you can write, especially about another co uh, country, which by nature you're, you're ignorant of because you you're traveling there, uh, away from home. Um, you know, the more, you know, about everything, the more you can speak to the specific things that do appear in your book. Mm -hmm. 
So I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about your workshops in in Paris. Um, Let's start off by asking the question, um, why would anyone want to write a a travel memoir if not to merely, you know, recount what they're already writing about in their journals? Well, the difference is, and I'm not going to knock journals because journals are a great thing. I I did a a podcast myself about travel journals with Mm -hmm. Lavinia Spaulding, who wrote a great book about that. But that is the difference is the audience, you know, that you write the, the journal, the journal is personal. And oftentimes a journal is kept in tandem with what might later become a book. Um, but you, you, you just write and you even think in a different way when you have an audience in mind and it forces you to be honest, you know, that you can be sort of, mm. um, prejudiced or, or inaccurate in a journal. And, you know, what does it matter? You know, you might just be in a bad mood that day, whereas you can't, that doesn't translate into a book, you know, especially in the age, you know, uh, in the globalized age where people in that village that you didn't care for much can, can read your book and disagree with you. Um, so it's just, it's a different, it's an apples and oranges thing. It's, it's both writing, but a travel memoir is a way to communicate, uh, to an audience. Mm -hmm. And, and, and oftentimes I tell people, well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the journal is enough, you know, that maybe, maybe you might get a few articles out of your travel trip, but maybe the book isn't going to happen. I mean, that happened literally, as we've said to me, you know, I tried to write an entire book about my USA travels and it was as much, and actually I did my first byline at salon years ago was a chapter from that book. So, um, I, I try to discourage people from fetishizing the book. The book can be a great vessel, uh, especially if you have a theme. You know, if you if you have something that makes it universal and readable, readable beyond your own interest in the subject. Um, but even if it doesn't get finished, you can learn so much by digging into that content um, with the audience in mind, mm-hmm. and also going through the the practicum of you know thinking about writing and writing and research. All that is. Uh very uh, helpful uh, for the, for the writer. Um, you'd mentioned something about um, audiences and writing for an audience. What are your thoughts on the the market for for travel memoir um, specifically, or, or or memoir memoirs in general? Well, so far as I can tell, it's a healthy market. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't that doesn't mean it's going to make you rich. You know, I think the the eat pray love. Uh, portion of that market is pretty small. Um, mm-hmm. That it's not necessarily a blockbuster market, but it's an evergreen market. That people people like to read this stuff. And um, you know, I was I was reflecting on students of mine who've succeeded. A lot of them are women. You know, there's a huge um, not just because my students, my women students, have been good writers, but there's a huge um, market of women who like to read about travel and specifically like to read about other women traveling. Um, you know, I think like Maggie, the Maggie Downs memoir I mentioned is, is Counterpoint, which is a smaller publisher. Uh, and so sometimes your big um, New York, I'm not sure if it's big five, I'm not sure how many of them are these days, but the big corporate publishers, they publish some travel memoirs. I think they publish travel memoirs every year, but, but because it's such an evergreen market, a lot of smaller presses will do the same. Mm. Um, and in fact, Traveler's Tales published my second book, and they specialize entirely on travel memoirs. And that that book is the Marco Polo anthology. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What about um, self publishing, independent publishing? Um, do you think that's gaining more traction? Is there still um, kind of taboo around that, or? 
I don't think there's taboo around it. Um, and in fact, it's been a while since there's been taboo. There was a time, mm-hmm. a, gen- a generation ago where it's like, well, if, if you can't, if your book isn't good enough to get published, publish it yourself. Well, now the thing, the thinking is, is, well, if you have 50,000 Instagram followers, why give 90% of your profits to a publisher? You know, why right, not just right. sell it directly to the people who already like you? And there is an extent to which it's frustrating that publishers are actually looking for people with lots of social media following because they don't want to do the work of promoting the book. <laughs> um, the, the, the only catch here is that usually it's the practical service guidebook type travel writing that does best in self-publishing. Um, that it's, if you have an expertise on Latvia and you have a bunch of, of little guidebooks or um, writing about Latvia, then you can probably sell to people who are into Latvia or into certain types of kinds of travel or certain places that people travel to. Um, whereas if you have a story about the time that your life changed while you're hiking across the Swiss Alps, um, that unless you're a very personal writer with a large social media following who is following you for that personal writing and voice, um, that's a little tougher nut to crack as far as self-publishing goes. It, it, it helps when you have um, other publishers who can sort of help legitimize you as this person who is going to tell a very personal story in the Swiss Alps. Mm-hmm. And also um, the the publishers have the fact checkers and the editors that will help hopefully strengthen strengthen the writing itself so there is also you know an upside to to going the tr- traditional route um as opposed to the independent publishing route um you'd mentioned something earlier about uh success stories and and most of them happen to be women i'm i, I lead study abroad programs and about 75 percent of students who go on these programs happen to be women. So I think maybe their women are just more interesting or maybe they like to, to, to travel more. Um, but can you recall or, or tell us about any of your students who had success? Sure. Uh, travel specific or students in general? Uh, students in general that have gone through your Paris courses. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, there's like Patricia Engel, Patty Engel. She was a student years and years ago, like 15 years ago. She's a novelist. Uh, she won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize in 2017. She's Colombian American. Um, and her books are just so terrific. And she's, she's a big shot writer as is Tommy Pico. He's a poet. Um, and he, I think his latest poetry collection was called junk. Um, he's a native American queer writer. Um, but is not like in the specific silo. He's a very universally beloved Mm -hmm. writer. I don't know if I can claim credit for either one of those, uh, in a way that, you know, the students who come through Paris are on a professional trajectory. And in a way it's hard, it's probably pretty rare for a writer with no experience to come to a class and then suddenly have their entire life transformed. That sometimes a class like the one I teach in Paris is going to be a catalyst for a career that's already on its way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Victoria Brownlee wrote some books, uh, published some novels uh, a couple, beginning a couple of years ago uh, that are France-based. She lives in France with her husband now. Uh, Alicia Malone is a film writer. She wrote a book about um, women in film. Um, and again, you know, we can we can take partial credit, uh, just a tiny bit of credit for her because she is an Australian film journalist. And so again, whatever we taught her in Paris was a catalyst for what she was already doing. And then there's like Jonathan DeHart, who actually uh, he's he wrote the New Moon Guide to Japan. 
Um, and guidebook writing is a little bit different monster. He's actually coming back next summer uh, to work on a travel memoir. So um, he he sort of got a nice contract from Moon to write a guidebook style book, but he's still interested in writing a more uh, book with a more personal lens. And so he's coming back to one of my um, returning students' workshops this summer to work on that. That's so cool. Can you um, just for the sake of us understanding what, like, can you talk to us about like how the workshop is structured? Are there assignments and activities or how does it, how does it work? Well, there's a couple different types of workshops and, and the one week travel memoir classes are newer. Mm -hmm. Um, since 2005, we've been doing, and I think everybody I just mentioned was a member of that, of the one month class. Um, and that's multidisciplinary. There's also poetry and and fiction uh, and straight up memoir. And that's, uh, it's a four week program. You spend the first two weeks in craft classes and craft classes are just where you learn the nuts and bolts of, of, of the trade. And sometimes people who have done a lot of reading or even a lot of writing in a genre haven't really considered, you know, basic elements of structure and, and, and theme and, and, even sentence construction. And then the second two weeks of that are all about workshops. And workshops are when you take uh, a, a short piece of writing in progress and you submit it to your fellow students and then you sit there quietly and it's sort of like a book club for your own writing. <laughs> and you hear people discuss your writing and you learn so much. The workshop process is so educational simply because by hearing other people talk about your writing as if you were not there, you learn, <laughs> you learn all those, all these shortcomings, you know, without, with, in a non-didactic way, it's like, oh, of course they don't know that I was in this village in Bhutan because I didn't mention that. I should mention that in my next draft. So the one week programs are a shorter version of that. Um, so usually we'll do a couple days of craft, uh, and then some in class, some free writing, which I also do in the month long workshop and some exercises in the city, like the flaneur exercise, the, mm. the idea, the old French Parisian idea of wandering the city with no particular goal. Uh, and then we have a couple of days of workshops in the one week course as well. My returning students workshop is going is even more workshop oriented. It's, it's less craft because they've all taken craft classes from before, but students like Jonathan will come back and it's all deep dive workshop stuff. And it's great because one thing about the workshop is that it's not just me teaching the class is that you're getting feedback from your fellow students. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're going to be finding things, even though they're not professionally trained as a teacher, as a reader, they're going to be finding things that I might've missed. And so it's like having, depending on the size of your workshop, it's like having four to eight brains, um, earnestly looking into your story in ways that can really make your writing better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also teach, uh, I'm at the university level and I, <laughs> Jeez, I, I swear to God, like they, they learn more from each other than, <laughs> than they do from me. Like, you know, when, when one of their peers um, kind of offers some some truth or, you know, teaches them something, it seems that they, they listen more than, you know, when the when the professor says it. Right. Like right. Well, another thing, too, another thing, too, is sometimes they will they will offer a critique to a peer and then realize that they're making the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's easier to identify in other people's writing, oh, these adverbs are useless. Why, why, why are the adverbs? And think, oh man, I use all <laughs> adverbs a lot too, right? So it's it's a way of thinking. You know, I, I tell my students that um, planning to write your story is a different kind of thinking than writing your story itself. You're going to be making discoveries as you write that you had never planned on writing before you started writing. It's the same way as you're digging into somebody else's story that you're thinking about narrative in ways that 
can enhance your own narrative. And actually, one of the cliches of writing workshops is that somebody will have their story workshop, but then they won't really pay that much attention to other people's stories. They won't be generous. And in a way, they're cheating their fellow students, but they're also cheating themselves. But mm. Because through reading other people's stories, you are engaging in the discipline of narrative in a way that can enhance your own writing. You'd mentioned here um, a more kind of hands-on approach and, and learning about structure. Um, Two questions out of this. Um, to to what extent are 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 you involved in the the day to day of of, of the classes? I mean, should, should students who attend your your workshop expect some quality Rolf time, <laughs> uh, talking about and uh, talking about some of their writings and kind of digging into the text? Yeah, for sure. I mean. Um the the one month course has three other teachers, uh, and and so if they apply to the one month course, just in the application, request me as an advisor, uh, because I don't advise. Sometimes people will want to concentrate on poetry and work with a poet, I right? See. Uh, whereas in the one week course, it's just me, uh, and so the one week course probably guarantees more FaceTime? Uh, not really. I, I think in the course of the month, the month is just a long amount of time. And if you want to, you can get some access. But for good concentrated Rolf time, uh, <laughs> the one-week course is great, in part because I actually schedule one-on-one -on -one conferences for everybody. Um, so by the in the first or second afternoon, I meet with everybody over the course of the afternoon. The other students are off doing exercises, flaneuring in the city. Um, and I'm getting a sense for things because it's good for me to know exactly what people's goals are, um, and to sort of gently reinforce, um, some goals that I think they might apply to their writing. So yeah, it, there's access to me in all the programs, but that one week travel memoir class is probably particularly attuned to that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned it twice and I have to ask, uh, more about this flaneur exercise. Can you <laughs> tell us what this, uh, what this involves? Is it uh, kind of random aimless note taking? <laughs> what does that look like? Well, the flaneur, and I'm, I'm, this is a very American accent on this French word. Uh, it comes out of the 19th century. I think mm -hmm. Charles Baudelaire uh, wrote about it. It's, it's the idea that you walk through a city not in order to use the city or to be utilitarian about getting one place to another, but walk through the city in search of experience and just sort of let the city talk to you in such a way that you are maybe not taking an efficient route and you're sort of following your, your instincts rather than a, a map, mm -hmm. but you are engaging with experience and other people in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. Now, one thing I do as part of this exercise is, is psychogeography uh, and psychogeography is the idea that there, there's more than one map to a city. There's, there's lines on a piece of paper or there's these, um, maps on your phone, but there's other ways to walk through the city. We do an exercise called color tracking where you pick a color pink, green, red, and you follow it through the city and you let that color be your guide to the city. Um, there's, there's all sorts of psychogeographical strategies that can be mm -hmm. combined with the flaneur exercise that basically, you know, one of the big cliches of travel writing is, is sort of going to the place everybody else goes. You know, people think they, they're in Paris. Should I write about the Louvre? Well, you can write about the Louvre, but why not wander away from the Louvre in a way that makes no sense and just see what you discover? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and especially in a, in a city like Paris, which has so many tourists there during during the summer, that if you wander a few blocks away from the tourist zone, suddenly you're in a in, in a place that is more resonantly French, and you're going to have more 
epiphanies and insights and unique experiences than if you'd just been following the basic top 10 list uh, approach to, to Paris. Mm-hmm. And for the audience, if you haven't um, read any of the Baudelaire stuff, um, definitely check out The Painter of Modern Life. I think that was the the essay that um, Baudelaire talks about, you know, the, the character of the flaneur in, 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 in Paris, where they float around the city and they just kind of get lost in the ebb and flow and the energy of of the city ex- itself. Yeah. Where can we find more about your travel memoir workshop? Uh, we well, can go to pariswritingworkshops.com. Uh, you can also go to my website at rolfpotts.com, but it's probably a little bit more direct to go to Paris Writing Workshops. There's different varieties. This year we're, we're offering travel memoir. There's also the one-month Paris Writing Workshop, which is terrific. Uh, and then I'm also doing a, a big idea book writing course um, which it actually is in London this year, but mm. uh, that's about uh, like vagabonding is a travel book, but it's also a big idea book. It's about travel, but it's about life, you know. Mm. Um, and it, it influenced books like Tim Ferriss' The Four Hour Work Week, which is about work, but it's about life. And so, if you have an expertise, uh, you know, be it in finance or medicine or law or just your own life, and you want to write a book that is maybe a little bit narrative, but more is about there's more that speaks to broad life themes, uh, through the specificity of your expertise. The big idea book workshop is a great way to, uh, to think about that for a week. And one great thing I I taught my first big idea book workshop last summer. And a lot of people don't, they come from disciplines that don't actually involve writing, you know, like finance or law. Mm -hmm. And they have a ton of fun that basically you get to be a creative person for a week uh, and you get to take all of these great ideas and you get to learn those lessons, how to tell a story, how to make things universal, because a lot of these disciplines are very technical. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a that is I had a lot of fun with that class uh, last year. And I'm looking forward to the the class we're doing on this year. Mm-hmm. Your, your vagabonding book is in one way, uh, one part manual on how to and why to travel long term, right? But on the other part, it also has the the narrative of, of a travel memoir, which is a nice kind of nice relationship. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier, how, you know, the how to aspects of the book are in some ways embellished by the stories that you tell while you are on the road and vice versa, right? The stories are given a framework of relevance and, and depth, thanks to the, the how to quality. Yeah. Yeah. And then and because it's not specifically in the memoir category, I bring in a lot of other thinkers, too. You mm-hmm. know, that there's John Muir and Henry David Thoreau and, and you know, just all sorts of Annie Dillard, all sorts of people who have thought about travel or about these uh, life textures that can be examined through travel, I bring the, those people in too. So it's it's sort of a right. melding of, of different ideas to support my argument, which is that if you want to travel, you should probably just make time and do it. The, the Paris workshops are in uh, the Latin Quarter, is that correct? Yeah, it's on Rue Saint-Jacques. It's on the oldest road in um, in in Paris. It's the old Roman road that goes to Santiago de Compostela. Um, it's just, it's just a, such a beautiful place to be in France. And literally like 90 seconds from the classroom is a place where Victor Hugo lived when he was 11. Right. Uh, and, um, you can sort of trace Hemingway's, uh, uh movable feast through that neighborhood. Uh, and not that that's going to make you a good writer. It just makes it an <laughs> exciting, it makes it an exciting setting in which to spend a month thinking about writing. 
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to my Paris travel writing classes and Jeremy Bassetti's Travel Writing World podcast can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>